What's up, everybody? This is Scott Lease, your co-host for another edition of Surf and Sales Podcast. Richard Harris is here, as always, my good friend. And we are joined today by Chris Walker, CEO and founder of Refine Labs. How's it going, Chris? It's going great, Scott. Richard, thanks for having me. Good to meet you both. Looking forward to, uh, to jamming for about 45 minutes here. Yeah, man, this is exciting. We've, uh, we all sort of know each other or of each other more exactly, than yeah. interacted. So it's cool to put a, a voice and a face to the, to the name beyond just uh, LinkedIn posts, you know? For sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just to go on a little bit of a tangent, like I've met so many amazing people through the just the activity of LinkedIn. I'm sure you all feel the same. Like um, it's been incredible. And so getting to, uh, getting to chat with you guys is uh, awesome as well. Yeah. Well, today's show is brought to you by Leap411. In case you're looking for direct phone numbers, sales data, uh, funding updates, job changes, all this kind of stuff, check it out. Lead 411 plugs right into, uh, into LinkedIn. We're really grateful to have them as a, as a sponsor. So, Chris, let's get started with what the heck is Refine Labs? What do you do? Talk to us. Give everybody some background. Yeah, so, so in essence, I started this company about 18 months ago. We run demand generation campaigns and account-based marketing campaigns, primarily for growth stage B2B SaaS companies. Um, and we do it in a very unique way. And so when I, when I was working in-house at a growth stage venture-backed company, I saw what was going on in marketing and I saw what was going on with sales. And I started to, I built a demand engine from the ground up inside of a $30 million company, which is to call it what it is. And during that process, nobody was telling me what to do. So nobody was telling me to run ebook downloads. Nobody was telling me to do these things. I did the things that I thought were going to work. And then I figured out which ones worked and I figured out which ones didn't. And then I just kept doing the things that worked and I stopped doing the things that didn't. However, in most companies, they're doing things that have been accepted like the ebook downloads or other pieces like that. Um, and so I just feel like we've found a better way to run demand gen for companies. What? what? Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, just for context, because I it and it changes all the time. What do you define as a growth stage SaaS company these days? Where are they at their growth stage? And what if they're pre-growth stage, right? Um, what does that even look like? Because that's a great buzzword, and I hate buzzwords. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I look at it, it's, it's 10 to 100 million ARR. Um, I think it's a, it's a nice little range. Um, typically post-Series B, somewhere in, somewhere in that, maybe some A's. Um, and the reason that we work with those companies is because what we are, like at 10 million ARR, you got something going, right? Like there's, there's some traction and we are gasoline that goes on top of that fire. When you get to the 500K ARR startup, it doesn't work it doesn't work so much. It still works. It's just like we are going for rapid impact. Um, and so in a 500K startup, they might not have a very well-defined ICP. They might not who they're, know who they're selling to yet. They might not have exactly product market fit. The product might not, it might be too early. There's a lot of, a lot of other factors in the equation. When you get to 10 million, it's like, okay, we know who we're selling to. The, the market has accepted the product and now let's grow. This is, this is how it works, Richard. A young company brings me in to to get them to 10, 15, 20 million. Then I, I call Chris and say, Chris, dump some gasoline on this. Do some demand gen. Help us out here. And then Chris and I get out of the way and we're like, hey, Richard, now you can do some sales training with these people. They're at 100 million. That's also the part right when you get let go. Yeah, so. that's, that's right. Chris and I will be fired by then and you come in <laughs> and you, know, you can 
and do your song and dance and then everybody wins. It's fine. We're used to it. We're used to it. Right? <laughs> oh man. Chris, why, what led to like this event in your, in your head where you're like, okay, I need to do demand jam. Nobody's telling me what to do. I think this will work. Like what was your, what was your intuition? Like how did yeah. you know, okay, I think this is going to work. I'm going to go for it. This is, this is fascinating. I've never, I've never really told the story before. And so I worked inside of this company. They weren't really, they were doing a lot of traditional marketing. They were going to trade shows. They were, and it was sales enablement and trade shows is basically what the company was doing. Um, and there was a huge field sales organization across the U S and we were selling into hospitals and they were selling to capital part, uh, products. So if you were going to go do a demo, you would actually go to the hospital and do the demo. And so I was managing the children's hospital segment. And when there was big opportunities, I would go with the sales rep because I knew the clinical data and I could speak at that level with medical directors and people like that. And after going to somewhere between five and 10 of those meetings with sales reps, where I would fly across the country from Boston to San Diego to have a meeting and could feel that the person that we were talking to wasn't ready to buy the product, didn't have enough education about what we did, didn't understand the clinical data. And when we got into that sales conversation, they were not receptive to the information they would have preferred to have it before. And so I went on this little bit of a mission to figure out, okay, what are all the things that that buyer would need to know before the rep shows up? And then how do I deliver it to them in a way that they like and that they want? And then when I, started doing those things, what happened was a lot more people came to our website and said, Hey, I'd love to talk to your sales rep. And then we saw that they closed significantly faster. We won them at a much higher percentage. And when you have field based sales reps and they're driving four hours to go and win a deal, you'd much rather have the win rate be 30% than 6%. Right. And so continued to replicate that model. I started with a $500 test budget to run Facebook ads and 12 months later was managing a $1.2 million budget and a team for content and demand gen. Um, and it worked, it worked. And at the end of it, the company went from 0% marketing contribution to revenue, essentially zero. And 12 months later, marketing was bringing in 33% of net new logo revenue for that company, which had a huge, a dramatic impact on customer acquisition cost, pipeline velocity, growth acceleration and gave it, I mean, the company IPO'd at 46 million about two years ago. I'm going to ask you a question and I'm not going to let you sit on the fence. Okay. okay. Is marketing getting better at selling or are salespeople getting better at marketing? I don't think that marketing is getting better at selling. I think, really? that, I think that there are salespeople that are getting better at marketing. Why, uh, why is that? Can you try to elaborate on that? Um, most, mar most marketers don't talk to customers. Most marketers don't even talk to customers. They listen to recorded calls on gong and chorus. They'd never talk to one. You know what I mean? Like, and so uh, I don't see how you could be, get, be getting better at sales if you don't talk and have a conversation with potential buyers, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, it's, it's a generalization, but I would say that most marketers listening to this would say, yeah, you know, I haven't talked to a customer in the past three months, you know, and so I'm trying to think when the last time somebody from marketing, like sat in a sales call, a live one rather than a recorded one, right? Let alone called and talked to customers. And the, the, and so the caveat is a really strong marketer will get someone 80% of the way there, which makes it feel like it's sales. Yeah. And, and salespeople, I feel like 
have had to adjust the selling style so much. They're writing so much copy now and, and almost the hyper-personalization of everything and how people are building their brand is sort of forcing salespeople, I think, to, to be better at marketing than you used to be 15, 20 years ago. It's just a, let's just call it what it is. Like, it's a more effective way to do business development today is marketing than cold outbound, right? Like, um, the person, if you look at like, like Justin Welsh is an extreme example, but there's tons of people inside of their industries that have 9,000 followers on LinkedIn and those 9,000 followers are their prospective buyers. And they're bringing in deals a lot easier than making a hundred dials a day. Right? Like, and so I think that the smart either AEs or SDRs are going in that direction because it's the path of least resistance to hitting quota. So what is, what are, what are a couple of tips, right? For the, for those of us who are engaged in this social selling, right? The strategy has been, you know, just start writing, you know, um, you know, don't worry if someone likes it or doesn't like it, you know, but what are some marketing tips or better yet, what's a good demand gen tip for that SDR or BDR that you could recommend? Hey, if I were an SDR or BDR, I'd be writing this content or, I mean, I don't know if they're going to put out an ebook, but what, what are some of those things that you think um, this, and, and even salespeople should be doing it too. So let mm -hmm. me know, you know. Yeah. I th the answer is almost exactly the same, whether you're in marketing, whether you're an SDR, or whether you're an account executive, the first step in my view is have 10 to 30 conversations with prospective buyers or customers. That is a non-sales situation and just talk to them and understand them and get to know them and talk about more than just your product. What happens when you're, they don't feel the pressure of a sales situation is they tell you the truth, right? And so uh, I think that's step one is you need to understand those people at a deeper level and you have to figure out where you can insert value, right? And so that would be number one is understand the audience and then figure out where they're spending time in most B2B, it's going to be on LinkedIn. It's like the B2B communication highway right now. And then I would figure out how to communicate things that are helpful to those people. One of the things that I say that a lot of people call me a bullshitter for, but it's actually 100% true, they're wrong, is that I never have any intention of selling anything on LinkedIn, ever. I've never made a post and thought, I can't wait for a lead to come in after this post. It's because all I'm doing is giving out good information and allowing people to recognize me as someone that might be able to help them with something. And so... What are your, some of your favorite ways to create that engagement though? You're not looking for leads, but you are looking for engagement, mm -hmm. right? Everybody will say they don't chase the likes and the views, but they do. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you find to be the most appealing? In terms of getting engagement? Yeah. So the one strategy that I, I use, I, I've never heard anyone come up with a strategy like this one. Um, a lot of people will use Sales Navigator and connect with people in their ICP. Like that one is well published and documented. A lot of people do it. I was doing that, didn't see the results that I wanted to while I was following that strategy. And so what I did was something a little bit different. When I was building, I would follow people that already had big audiences that were already talking to the people that I wanted to talk to. And so Colin Cadmus, Justin Welsh, Dave Gerhardt, those types of people would follow Don them. Lee, Richard Harris, we know. Yes, exactly. Would follow the, all those people. And then I would connect with the relevant people that liked their post. The reason is that if Dave Gerhard posted the thing two hours ago, then the 500 people that already liked it, I know they log into LinkedIn almost every day. And so it's not only about having connections in your ICP, it's about having 
relevant connections that use the platform every day who then amplify it to other people and other decision makers. I think people think about it way too directly. It's like, I only want to connect with chief information security officers, not understanding that there's a bunch of people underneath them that can give you access to the exact same person. And, they don't, and, and, the, and the platform at present doesn't make it easy for you to tell who's on there when and how often and, and how active they are and whatnot, mm-hmm. right? So you, you have to do that manual labor that you did, which is like, okay, I'm going to look at. I still do it. So-and-so's post. I'm going to see who's showing up there and, and engaging quickly on their posts. So I know they're active and whatnot. There's no, there's no quick way. I mean, I've, I've had, I've gone through this trimming process of my network for the last few months because I've been maxed out forever. Mm-hmm. And one of the criteria that I've had to do manually is like, okay, how often is this person posting at all? How often are they commenting? And boom, those are the first people that are getting cut. The mm-hmm. people who might have the right kind of title, right? But they're not doing anything there. So are you using a SaaS tool for that or doing it manually? Manual labor. Yeah, so somebody, I know LinkedIn's API sucks and it's super close, but if somebody made a SaaS tool to cure, better curate the network oh, yeah. as a... There are, there are a couple of them out there, but they're all black hat. Got um, it. And I think Bilal told us one, Scott, when we were talking to him on our interview. I, mean, I have to go back and listen to that episode. But um, I think Bilal... Yeah, they're, they're, all, they're all kind of... They're not above the board, though. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Not that we're advocating that for anybody listening. So that's what I, that's what I would do if I was any, in any of those roles. I would understand the audience you know, you, you might be able to hack it at, t- at 10 calls. I know this because when I went to those hospitals and I went to the, had the sales conversations and I experienced that, the next thing that I did is I spent eight weeks in a ho- in hotels across the country, visiting all these different hospitals and understanding what they were doing and understanding I would shadow people in the ER at two in the morning and understand when they turn the dial, why? And I would start to figure that out. And then when I went back and I started executing a content strategy, I knew who the right people to interview were. I knew I could speak the language with an emergency medicine doctor that's been in, um, has gone to university for like 12 years. And I could at least speak to the level where I seemed educated. And so those are some of the things that I think, especially when you're speaking to a buyer, that's not like you, like right now it's a a luxury for me. It's also a luxury for you. We're selling to the same people that we have the skill set, right? Like I'm a marketer. I'm selling to marketing people. You're salespeople. You're selling to salespeople. But when you're a sales rep and you're selling to physicians, or you're selling to chief information security officers or VPs of finance, it gets a little bit harder when you don't fully understand the buyer, right? And I think a lot of people listening to this might fall into that camp where their buyer is not really like them. So you got to understand them. And, you, and you've gone on record and wrote, wrote about this a lot, but like you're very much focused on the long game and you've put in that, that time. You just said you spent eight to 10 weeks on the road. Like, no, nobody does that. Nobody being relative, like most nobody people does don't that. put in that type of effort and energy to understand, you know, who their potential buyer buyer is, right? So you've been focused on the, the long game. How do you stay focused on the long game when you have, you know, a team and employees underneath mm-hmm. you and revenue targets that you want to hit right now while you're running your own business? Are you able to keep your, your eyes looking out in the horizon, what's coming next? I think the, the first thing is that I understand how long 
life really is, right? Like, and so that's that's step one. But what what just I don't break into chunks. So like when when I was 22, I knew that I wanted to start a business. I also knew that I wasn't going to start it the next day. I knew that I needed skills, and so I was able to use periods of time to build certain skills from 22 to 25. I built several e-commerce stores out of my bedroom, selling stuff on Shopify and Amazon and all these things, learning how to run digital ads that actually have positive ROI, um, re- learning how to build a website on a low budget, work with creative people, do all these different things on the side. And I didn't make a lot of money from that, but the things, the long-term ROI was extraordinary when I took that into a B2B environment with, where most people don't understand how to do it. And then that's where the ROI actually came. It was probably like a 10-year 10 year time frame between when I was doing those things to when I actually experienced the, the actual ROI. Um, and so I guess the, uh, my core thesis is that when you think long-term, you get better short-term results too, because you do the right things. And so that's just, it's just something that I really believe in. I believe that when you are focused on getting something soon, you, you take shortcuts that are the wrong things. Yeah. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I was just going to say, what's been, because it's always interesting if, if people are willing to share, and I, I get the sense you are or, and will, um, what's some of the mistakes you've made? What are some of those, whether it was building the business out starting 18 months ago to simple demand gen things, like what's something that you've learned that you'd like to pass on to others to help them not make that mistake? made some hiring mistakes. I think that, I mean, I'm not sure how much value that's going to add to people, but I've, I've rushed through hiring before, especially when I was, I hadn't hired a lot of people before in my career, rushed through it. Um, and it was, it was pretty painful, right? Like making the wrong hire hurts. And it was 100% my accountability. I skipped the project that I do for every employee. I overlooked warning signs. I just like things that I, I just, I've just made, I've made mistakes there. Um, so oh, wait, you, nobody in sales has ever made that mistake. Right. Are you kidding? Never. Yeah, we've no. never hired the wrong person. Everyone who hires sales is hits 10 out of 10 every time. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, but I, I like that part where you said, I skipped a part in my process. Mm-hmm. I knew better. Did you, even when you skipped it, did you go, well, I probably shouldn't, but I will? I, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I, yeah. I, I just just skipped it. I didn't even, I didn't even think about it. What is, what, what is the, what is the project if, if you could share Like, yeah, I would love to think of thinking about hiring, you know, somebody in a marketing capacity. Like how do you test for this? Yeah, it, it works. It's worked fantastic for me. All the people that have done the project, it easily vets whether, whether they're good for us and also if we're good for them. And so I think it works for everyone. Um, and so the project is never, an actual business thing because I'm not interested in having people do free work for for my business. So it's always a fictitious project. Um, and it's going to take somewhere between two and three hours. So it's not going to be a huge time commitment. And I'm, I'm looking at how people think through things, whether or not they can get stuff done, how they present their work, what questions they ask to get more information. It's going to flex based on the seniority level of the role, right? So I'll give you an example for a marketing manager. Um, there's a girl that looked looked great on paper and I was really interested in hiring her and she was a great fit for our company. Um, and I knew that one of the things that she was going to need to do was launch our podcast. And so I saw in her LinkedIn profile that she likes wine and certain things like that. So the project was you started an e-commerce wine store, you got it to a million dollars in revenue 
and now you need to launch a podcast to support more e-commerce sales, make the podcast, get it live on iTunes within the next seven days and build me a promotional plan with KPIs. And so that's like, that's an example of a project. She knocked it out of the park. She's crushing our podcast right now. Um, and it just far exceeded my expectations. What I like about, about that is, um, on some level you kind of catered to this particular person's strengths and made it, made it easier for them. Right. And, uh, you know, Richard, I, I know he's been in the same position, but in sales, they love to give us these like 30, 60, 90 projects or, you mm -hmm. know, make us do this like five hour sales presentation with 72 executives and all that. It's like, oh my the God. 30, 60, 90s are so dumb because you just get a cookie cutter approach with no context. Like I've done the 30, 60, 90. It would Tell be almost it. the same for any company you presented it to, you know? Tell me about it. I, I, I just raged about this a couple weeks ago on, on LinkedIn and it, it did really well because everybody is experiencing the same pain around it. Oh. Yeah. And I'm not about to give you my, I'm not, I'll write a 30, 60, 90 for my wine business, but I'm not going to write one for your business and then not give my <laughs> Like Scott disagrees with me, but I'm like, no. I don't, I mean, I don't disagree that it's fucked up. I just am like, I don't know. I, I tend to be like, okay, well, that's what I got to do if I really want this, this job. Yeah. It's interesting as a candidate too, to think about if they're making me do this dumb shit, do I even want to work here? Exactly. Yeah. Right. In, it, in, I think in that's the title of the episode right there, Chris. Like I, w I would do some things just, uh, I'm reflecting back now. Like when I was 25 and I was interviewing for director of marketing or stuff like that roles, like I would go in, not, not clean shaven, I would sometimes not wear a suit just to see what they, how they would react. Like that's not how I'm coming to the office. You know what I mean? It's almost like if, if you can't, if you can't get me into your organization because I'm wearing a polo in an interview, then fuck you. You know, <laughs> that's just how I feel. Clearly this is how I feel as well. <laughs> Chris, are you sure you shouldn't be in sales? He is in sales. He runs his own, he runs his own company. He's in sales. <laughs> There is a certain liberation that comes once you become, once you decide to work for yourself. It's amazing, you man. It's been the best, it's been the best 18 yeah. months of my life. I feel, I feel, um, free, creative, the ability to innovate, um, the ability to, to, you know, give people, I think much better and faster career paths that I think are great people hoping to keep them for a very long time and build something really extraordinary with me. Yeah. What, what pushed you off the cliff to do it? Because I know a lot of people, most of us don't go into the world saying, oh, I'm gonna, now I'm going to be a consultant or create my own business. Yeah, so I, I worked at a company, a Series A company that embodied all of the things that I do not agree with. And so, and so basically there's a friction point where I was forced to resign and I thought I was going to go get another job. Um, and so I, and then I went, first I went on vacation, which was amazing, by the way, I went to St. Martin and then I got back and I started looking through, yeah, it looks great over there. And then I started looking through job boards and saw hundreds of jobs that I was qual more than qualified for and had, didn't even have the energy to apply, just didn't want to. Um, and then I made a call to a, to a person that I'd worked for and actually worked with in the past. She worked for me. She was a VP of marketing um, at that point. 
And she helped let me write their content strategy at a hundred bucks an hour. So I built this from my couch on one $100 an hour um, consulting contract. And then the one 100 an hour turned into a monthly retainer. And then the one, two, three, four customers came. Then I hired people and we can have continued to grow from there. And now we're at, we're at nine full-time employees. I just hired a COO, um, which I'm really excited about. She's amazing. And um, yeah, really uh, the growth trajectory is really exciting. How did you, how do I phrase this? How did you know when it was time for you to grow your business in the sense of adding supporting personnel around you? Was it like, did you have a revenue milestone? Where it was like, okay, if I get to a half million dollars or a million dollars of revenue, like, I need to add people to my team. It's mm-hmm. time to grow. I can't do this all on my own. Or, or is there a different kind of thought process? I'm, yeah, I'm pretty curious about this entrepreneurial piece and component. For sure. Yeah, so I'll give you three different examples where I had to make varying levels of investments and I was scared before I did it. And so at the first point, this is like, this is like when I'm, when I have one, when I have one customer and, um, and the objective was to become a HubSpot partner. And in order to be a HubSpot partner, you need to have HubSpot. And so this is like, I have one customer that's paying me like $8,000 a month and I'm going to agree to do a year long $15,000 a year HubSpot contract. And it was scary. And, and my mindset on those things is that you, I was basically like, I thought about it for a while and I was like, fuck it. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. And so like, if this is what I'm going to do, I need to commit. I wasn't fully committed at that point. And then I committed to it and and had a couple customers come in through that agreement which got me to the next stage and then the next one was am i going when am i going to hire an employee the first employee i hired we were at $21,000 a month run rate so like not nowhere near 500k um and at that point it was just i know that i want to build something and i need i'm going to need people i'm not i cannot do this by myself um and so i hired someone who's been great very flexible it was a perfect hire um which was really awesome. And then the last one that I'll tell you as an example was in December, I had been debating in my head. So you know, the event that I did with Justin in in February in LA, I did one with Josh Braun in January. And for about three weeks, I had all of the all the information I needed to make the decision. I knew how much the how much the space was going to cost. I knew how much the flights were going to cost to find my whole team in there. I knew how much the videographers were going to cost. I knew how much their travel was going to be. And I was looking at it. And it was like, I don't know, 15 or 20k. And I was like, am I, what if we do this and nobody shows up? And then I just had to, I would just like, it was another like breaking point for me where you just got to like, if you're in this, you're in it. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Those two events that I did, I attribute a lot of the big growth trajectory to those two things. There's no attribution. Like some marketers are like, you can't prove that in your CRM. And I'm like, who the fuck cares? Like I, I can feel yeah. That when Justin promoted that event and the videos afterwards, what it did. Right. Yeah. And those are things that I think there's a lot in marketing. I'm not sure if it's in the sales, but for sure in marketing, they rely on attribution and they completely forgo common sense. It's like Justin posted this video, 50,000 people in the SaaS community saw it. Their revenue came in later, whether it was the next day or six months later, that had an impact that was ROI positive for me. Um, and so, yeah, those are, those are some examples, but like when I, when I, when I made the first hire, I knew that I had a model that was working 
and I knew that I didn't want to have a 250 K business forever. Yeah. It's interesting. There's uh, Richard, don't you think that there's a lot of parallels there to when we decided yeah, to was, even, the, even the spend that he's talking about is about the same as our serpent sales idea. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's interesting. I I've, I've been through that when I, I remember calling Scott and uh, I had a, I, I suffer from imposter syndrome. Out mm -hmm. the wazoo. We all do. We all and, do. Yeah. And, and I was deciding to put on this sort of training event for free back in May when everything was going on just to support the community. And, and I called Scott and I'm like, Scott's always my go-to. Hey man, do you want to do this with me? Cause I think Scott can pull in a good crowd as well. And, uh, and he's like, man, you got to do this. Like Scott made me do it on my own, which was good. And then, you know, literally by myself i drove a thousand registrants 500 attendees you know and it just sort of it it's freaky how that is where you and that didn't cost me any money there was no money yeah. on the table for that right compared to what you were describing so so it's i appreciate like, the challenge like and the struggle kissing a girl or a lot of different things it's like once you do it once it's not scary anymore but the first time the first time hiring someone the first time shelling out 20k and not knowing if anyone's going to show up all those different things are scary the first time and then I did the one in LA with Justin with complete confidence. And I would have done neither if I hadn't just taken that one step. I think there's an underlying like lesson there, something that I have to continue as we continue to grow, the investments get bigger and bigger. The risks sometimes can, obviously we're like hedging risks, right? Like I'm not out there making huge bets, but like the, the, the gross type of like risk gets, gets bigger and bigger as you grow. Um, so yeah, I think uh, just first is command. I remember, I remember about six or seven years ago, growth marketing was really raging, mm -hmm. right? And and it was sort of, and it, and it, at least in my opinion, it happened at the proliferation of the apps, right? And the app store really going mainstream. Sheer performance, yeah. Right? Run an ad, get a download for yeah. 50 cents. And, uh, and, and you said something really well, which is like, hey, you can't ignore common sense, you know, don't just pay attention to, to attribution. Do you still that see that? Do you see people still making that mistake of not applying common 100 percent? And where are Everywhere. they doing that? What what is the common sense versus the attribution that they should be aware of? Like, is there an example you can think of without you know naming a customer or, or whatever? Without <laughs> uh, calling anybody um, stupid. So. Um. <sighs> I'm just thinking of the, I'm just thinking of an example of just like building your brand and, and how many people are following you on LinkedIn, on LinkedIn. for example. Right. Like there's, and, there's plenty of underlying stories there. It's like, yeah, I mean, I do, I have, I figured out a way to like quantify the value of every single post that I make. That's and exactly what it is. X amount of revenue. No, and I that's also why, yeah, don't ahead, care sorry. to do that. I also don't care to do that. But I know. I know there's revenue there. I know. I, I, I know because I've, I've experienced it, right? So. And that's, that's why most companies either don't do or, or throw in the towel on LinkedIn is because they don't see any direct attribution to a sales conversation against it. And that I think it's just really not smart the way. But yeah, so on LinkedIn, like the idea that if I worked inside of a company and I was a CMO and somebody wouldn't have shut down my LinkedIn when I was getting six likes on my posts every morning, it, somebody would have said, Hey, you got to go back to do your job. You're spending two hours a day on this, making videos. Nobody likes it. This is a waste of time. That's what would have happened. But I had confidence in it. And now we get to this place 
And it's like, we have somewhere between 10 and 30 inbound opportunities coming in every week. And it's like, but almost no company would get to this point because they would have killed the program before they wouldn't have had the confidence. They'd be doing all the other dumb shit, which takes up 99% of their time. So they put 1% of their effort into LinkedIn, which is why it doesn't work. So there, there, I mean, there's a, go ahead. No, I was, I was, I was going to go a different direction. And that direction you mentioned is like video and you are one of the most like prolific posters of video content that's out there that, that I, that I follow and engage with at least. Um, but what I actually like about it is you go back and forth between text and, and video as well. So you're not only doing these one minute long kind of clips. And I'm thinking of a couple people that like all they do is this video. I, I, I like that back and forth component. How did you just, how did you get comfortable with doing both? And I'm asked, this is a selfish question, by the way, like I suck at doing video. I don't, I think I've done like four ever. Right. It's not my thing. I don't know. I, I can't, I can't get comfortable with it. Would it be helpful? Yeah, probably be helpful. Right. So convince me why I should be doing both. And I probably know the answer, but like I'm a stubborn mule. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Gosh, I have so much to say on this. I hope we have enough time. Um, so just make sure so, you make fun of Richard also. <laughs> one, when, as you get deep into a platform and this will resonate with you, you find all the nuances that nobody else finds. Like I'm in there studying, like I'm in there testing, like I'm posting at 4 p.m. on a day instead of 9 a.m. to see what happens. I'm in there posting Saturday morning for 9 a.m. versus 11 a.m. and seeing what the difference is. Did we lose him? I lost your audio, Chris. You there? Check one, two. Chris? You want to pause the recording, Richard? All right, we're, we're back, everybody. Chris is going to try to pick up. He had a good rant going, but the uh, power went out in his building there in, uh, in Boston. So we lost him for a second. So I, love the no, I love the no editing, by the way. Yeah, um, this is how we roll. Yeah, so. Ramon's, Ramon's style, dude. So, so let's get back into this. So it's September of last year. I have, I'm posting all text. I'm getting the most engagement ever. Four million views in a month. I'm using Shield. Everything looks great. And it was our lowest month ever for inbound inquiries, our lowest month ever. And, and then the next month I'm like, I start posting video. I committed to posting a video every, every day. And that was our best, our best performing month ever for inbounds. And then I, on, in November, we didn't have as many videos and the inbounds went down again. And I was like, huh, let me think about this. Why, why are the text posts getting way more views? but our inbounds are going down. And then I started to think it's like, maybe it's because when people see me, it adds a lot more credibility. It feels like they know me. And so that is the, that's the current theory around it. I think that a lot of people can copy someone else's post and put it in a text post and get a thousand likes, right? It's a lot harder to have a video like this and demonstrate expertise on a, every single day. That's That's what, kind of I got, that, uh, that resonates with me because I was straight plagiarized twice last week. So this is very, very yeah. top, top of mind. Now, question. 
how do you know that there's not like a, a lag, right? Like, okay, you did all of these text only posts and had a bad, uh, you know, bad inbound month. And then the next month you switch to video and have good inbound. How did you determine that all that tech stuff didn't just have a 30 day lag and show up the next month? You see what I'm saying? I, I, the, yeah, the truth is that I don't like it's all it's qualitative feel, right? Like, you, you know, this, you post a lot. It's just the feeling. And so now I have a mix of both. Like, like you, you mentioned originally, it's like, and so the strategy and I'll really break it down right now. Um, have never really said this before is that during the weekdays, it is video based and marketing expert, deep marketing expertise. So Monday through Friday, that's what I'm doing. Saturday, nobody wants to hear about customer acquisition costs and cost per lead. And so on Saturday and Sunday, I am posting text and they are post, they're more general and they're for scale. And so the, and a lot of people don't understand this, but in social dynamics, the content shows up based on how much content and how many viewers there are. Right. And on Saturdays, a lot of people don't post, but a lot of people still look. And so yeah. when I post on Saturdays, it's by far the best visibility day because there's not enough content to, to give everyone. Yeah. So a lot and more people see my stuff. It stands out. And so what happens is that I have a Saturday and a Sunday cadence that at this point are going for 200 to over a million views, which are bringing in a bunch of organic followers. And then Monday through Friday, I'm pumping pure marketing expertise and the, the things. So new followers, expertise, new followers added on expertise. And so that's kind of like the mix that I've been going for, um, which I think is working. I think it's working really well. That's great. I love how strategic you are about everything. This resonates with me because um, I'm embarrassed to admit, like, I'm not strategic about that. Like, I, I post when the spirit compels me, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't write stuff ahead of time. I don't use Buffer to send stuff out at 6 a.m. every single day. I don't have a content catalog. Like, mm -hmm. I just, I, okay, okay, good idea, boom. Right. Yeah. We're in little different camps though, because like, yeah. um, people in some cases, CMOs hire me to tell them how to do it. Right. So I real I, I do it because I want to understand it the most. Yeah. I want this, I want the CMO of Salesforce to need my help on this stuff. You know what I mean? Right. right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We need to, we need to be disciplined a whole lot better, Scott. Yeah. And so, and the last point is that, um, if you're posting video, the, the words that you write matter so much. And so I've been doing tests. Like if you, if I write a, if I post a great video and in the top, it says this video is great, check it out versus me writing a thousand characters of thoughtful context behind the video, the post will do dramatic. The same video will do dramatically differently. The, the core reasons is that a lot of people don't even watch the video. They just read the text. And so in both text or video, the copywriting skills matter a lot. Um, I've also done another test where I have a video that let's just say I posted eight months ago, a video with copy, and then I can strip out just the copy from the video and repost it as text eight months later. And the text post will go way farther than the video because you know the view and the visibility differences in the video. Most people don't do video because they would rather get 100,000 views than 3,000 video views. And I think that's very short-sighted. I would rather not do video just because... I don't like being in front of the camera, I think. But we're doing it right now. You're in front of the camera. We could clip clip something smart you said and we could post it. 
Well, that I would be okay with. Somehow me doing it myself, like holding my phone up and video. Yeah, my see, phone. this is the hack. This I is have, really. I have, I have fear over all that. This is the hack. So we, I do these things and this is what I post for video. I'm never, I don't ever make anything up. I'm always just talking to someone, whether it's a client doing free consulting for someone that has a topic that I want to talk about or I want to help them doing podcasts, any of those things. And so that fuels it yeah. because then so it comes off authentic. I don't have to, I don't, putting a camera in front of me and saying like, Hey people, I think you should try this new Facebook ad tactic. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. No. And that, I can't, I, I it feels weird. It. Yeah. Basically Chris has convinced me that I need to hire him. So he can do it. <laughs> right. Basically what this whole thing is doing. Richard, in case you didn't know, it's just me asking Chris. This is a discovery him. call. You I, don't, you I'm just, just don't feel it. Questions. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a prospecting email in about 13 seconds. <laughs> It's probably already there. Probably already there. Uh, Chris, we're, we're wrapping it up. Um, one of the things we do at, at the end of an episode, by the way, this flew by. This was epic content. Um, uh, you know, how can we help you? What can we do to help you? Is there a cause you're supporting these days? Um, what, what can we do to help, to help you in your business or your life? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this one in my back pocket. Um, for right now, but there, it will probably be somewhere between, uh, it's probably going to be Q1 of next year that I'm going to need a really good sales, sales rep. And so I'm going to, I'm going to store this. And when I need that person, I'll come to you experts to help me find just the person. I'll find that person faster than I can. He's, yeah. he is the king of that. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. Your, I'm your huckleberry for that. Thank yeah, you. that, that would be awesome. And see, I don't know if you can see it out the window, but you can tell that why the computer shut down is it is a monsoon outside my window. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, th that, that would be great. And, um, and yeah, just, you know, would, would love to come back sometime. We kind of got cut short. I feel like we got, I've really enjoyed this. I feel like we go in so many different directions. So, um, yeah. yeah. One, one thing I want to, I want to make sure we talk about real quick before we get out of here. Happy to talk, talk to everybody and, and, and fill them in about your project with, uh, our mutual friend Gitano. Yeah. So, uh, so funny enough, I went to the, um, Thursday night sales. I think it was episode one, right. When I got back from vacation in March and I saw this, like, you could just feel the energy in the community that was inside. You guys had the gallery mode, everyone had the videos on and I got off and I called Gatano, who I knew at a surface level at that point, like I had done a couple of videos with him. I had met him in Miami once. Like I barely, I barely knew the guy to be honest. Um, and I was like, Hey, these people are doing this thing for sales where they get a bunch of people live and they like just answer questions and help them and it build a community. I feel like we're going to be like stuck inside for a while. You want to do this for marketing? I don't see anyone doing it. And so we kind of like slapped something together the next Tuesday, like three or four days later, we did our first episode, 56 people, 56 demand marketers showed up. Um, we do it every Tuesday at 7:30 PM, 4:30 Pacific. Um, we get about 50 people. There's been a really nice, uh, consistent crowd. And so I, now we like know everyone on a first name basis. They know their questions. We've kind of set the, set the table on the overarching strategy and now we're getting really deep into the details. Um, people are getting, getting new jobs, getting promotions, starting side projects, getting huge traction on LinkedIn, like in yeah. weeks of time, there was one girl that posted today. She's been doing, she's been doing it for two weeks, just giving the formula that we get, that we delivered. She's been posting on two weeks and consistently is getting hundreds of, of likes on both videos and posts. And so that, it just makes me happy. Like the, the whole point of that event is to 
it's to help people get better. I wish that at some point when I was 24 or whatever age, I wish five years ago, there was a, that available to me for free where I could go and learn and get better. Um, and so that's something that I'm trying to help people with. And that, is that Wednesday nights, Chris? Tuesday nights. Tuesday nights. Tuesday nights. Yeah, there's like a different there's like a different event every night, so I didn't yeah. want to didn't want to compete on Thursdays. It was like so Tuesdays Tuesday it is Thursday is our night. Richard, when is your millennial coffee talk? Which day of the week is that? Wednesday? We actually do that Thursday mornings at nine morning Pacific. So oh, we we've, we've all got our time slots on the yeah. Tuesday. Ours is seven thirty p.m. on Tuesdays Eastern time, and we're getting a lot of pressure from Europe to like yeah, come on, it's two a.m. in Europe. You got to make it earlier, and I'm like. Yeah, sorry. I, we, we get that with Thursday night sales as well. And you're like, uh, I don't know. Trying, trying our best here. We, yeah. we did, we did one at noon on Thursday, which went pretty well. It's just not, it's not sustained. Gatano's got a full-time job. I'm running the company. It's just not sustainable. So we want to be able to have a core time. And a lot of people have like set it aside on their calendar recurring and yeah, seeing, seeing the same people there every, uh, every week makes me really happy. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for spending some time with us, Chris. It's been great. And uh, I learned a lot and uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm going to get sales pitch in my inbox and I would probably welcome it because yeah. I need, I need help with organization. I need help with demand gen, of course. And more importantly than anything, I need somebody to splice some freaking videos for me. Cause I, just oh, I got the contact for the videos. All right. So, thanks for spending some time with us. Everybody yeah. uh, check out lead 411. You get unlimited mobile direct phone numbers, sales data, Role changes, funding updates, job changes, along with the slick extension that plugs right into LinkedIn. See you next time on the Surf and Sales Podcast. Thanks, Thanks guys. Chris. This was a blast. See ya.